Welcome to the Pacific Education Pulse podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and cutting edge information through interviews with movers and shakers who are positively impacting the field of education in Hawaii and beyond. Each episode highlights the work of local and national experts who dedicate their lives to improving teaching and learning so that children and youth reach their full potential. Learn more and subscribe today at PacificEducationPulse.com. Here's your host, Dr. Hugh Dunn. Aloha, I'm Hugh Dunn, and I'd like to welcome you to the Pacific Education Pulse podcast, also known as Pep Talk, the show that keeps your finger on the pulse of education. You can find all Pep Talk episodes on podcast directories such as iTunes and Spotify, or go to our website at PacificEducationPulse.com. This program is brought to you by the Pacific Literacy Consortium, administered within the Curriculum Research and Development Group. Today we have another exciting and informative show for you. Our pep talk show guest is Dr. Gene Wallet. He'll be sharing about his co-authored book, Brain Words, How the Science of Reading Informs Teaching. As the title states, he'll touch upon how discoveries in neuroscience can be translated into practical and effective instructional methods that can be used by classroom teachers and reinforced at home. Dr. Gene Wallet is an internationally recognized researcher in reading, spelling, and the links between oral and written language. He's head of the psychology department at Mount Allison University in New Brunswick, Canada, where he teaches courses in child and adolescent development. Welcome to the show, Dr. Willett. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I want to mention to our listeners that you're with me in person, having traveled all the way from New Brunswick, Canada. That's right. My understanding is that New Brunswick is on the east coast of Canada. Yeah, about as far away as we could be and still be North America. Well, I'm glad you're here. Yeah, so am I. So you're at now now at Mount Allison University, mm-hmm. as you said. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about your work there and as well as with other affiliations? Sure. So Mount Allison is, is a very small uh, undergraduate university, uh, liberal arts and science model. So we just have over 2,000 students. I have a lab there called the Language and Literacy Learning Lab. Uh, and we have funding from a couple different sources um, the, through Canadian government funding uh, to look at um, connections between early spelling and reading. I uh, have a line of research that looks at early vocabulary. Uh, we're doing a, a large-scale project now in kindergarten classrooms looking at storybook reading uh, and how children learn vocabulary from storybook reading, which has been studied in the past, but trying then to make the link to how they then learn how to read those same words that are embedded in those storybooks. So it's looking at oral language and storybooks and, and learning how to read in kindergarten. Uh, also have a, a line of research that looks at the connections between spelling and reading uh, across different ages. So there's, there's different lines of research within that, that literacy lab. Sure, have a lot on your plate. It's exciting. Let's talk about your book. Okay. Sure. Uh, I have it right in front of me. Beautiful cover. Uh, you co-authored the book with your colleague Richard Gentry. Mm-hmm. And the title of it is Brain Words, How the Science of Reading Informs Teaching, published by Stenhouse. What motivated both of you to to write this book? I've always wanted to write a book. And I've always wanted to write a book geared towards teachers or teachers in training. Because uh, I just see this these worlds, this research world and this teaching world, that they don't come together. So my own personal goal was I, wa- I really want to try to unite the, the teaching and the research world. Uh, worlds. So I've been thinking about this for, for over 10 years, 
um, and some of the research I do is based on early spelling, uh, which Richard Gentry was one of the real first people to, to study that way back in the 80s. Um, and so when I uh, had, a, had a couple publications on, on spelling and reading, he contacted me. Um, we'd never met. And, and we, we had back and forth emails for almost a year. And, and in that process, we kind of realized we both had this idea for, for a book that was almost the exact same idea of trying to disseminate the science and the research without going into the details. Some, some other researchers have tried to do um, books along this line over the past number of years, but we found that they got bogged down in the research details that, that perhaps the practitioners, the teachers, the frontline workers don't really want to have to sort through. So it starts with, with a lot of theory um, and, and what the science says, but then to, to make really readable applications. So what can teachers do with that knowledge? Yeah, and I think both of you did a really good job. It's really laid out well. It's uh, eight chapters. What do you hope that teachers, parents, or other stakeholders take away from this book? Uh, you know, I, I think the big message is just for people to be aware that there is a scientific study of, of reading, uh, and, and that is based on the scientific method, right, which, which is based on objectivity uh, and data. Uh, it, it seems that, that there's still a pushback against science. There's almost a conspiracy theory kind of mindset among some people that it's, it's science and, and research doesn't belong in education. Uh, and so I think the big message is that, that, that there's a that there's knowledge here to be gained from looking at what science tells us. Uh, and then I, th I think this, the, the, um, the secondary uh, offshoot of that is that we can base our teaching and what we do with, with children from early childhood through elementary, middle school uh, and beyond. If we based it upon theory and evidence supported practice, we, we can improve literacy outcomes. Wonderful. You know, one of our recent pep talk guests was Dr. Joanna Christodoulou, a developmental cognitive neuroscientist who conducts research on the brain basis of reading using neuroimaging. In your book, you also discuss the neurological reading circuit and the findings from brain imaging research. What does the science of reading research tell us about building a dictionary in the brain? Right, yeah, you know, what we try to do in the book, we started with, with I think it's probably the densest chapter on just developmental reading theory. And then we followed that with the chapter on the neuroimaging research. And the point we want to make is that the two align incredibly well. And what we know as children learn how to read and write, the brain changes. Uh, and we see all four lobes of the human brain are involved in, in reading. And what develops are these interconnections between the parts of the brain. Right? So we talk about building a dictionary in the brain. Uh, that's basically storing words. So when we learn oral language, we learn how to pronounce words, and we learn what those words mean. Uh, and when we become literate, we learn what those words look like in print. So we're able to read them when we encounter them, and we're able to write them if we want to put uh, words onto paper. So the neuroimaging research and the developmental research, really, they couldn't map onto each other you know, more perfectly than they do. It's incredible. What does developmental and cognitive research tell us about teaching phonological awareness, decoding, encoding, and teaching sight words? It tells us a great deal, right? So, so we know probably of any area of literacy research that there's been the most attention over the past few decades on phonological awareness. We know that that's a critically important step on the pathway to literacy, but we know it's not in itself sufficient. But we know it's a developmental milestone and it's a really important skill to have. Uh, we know decoding, the ability to sound out words that sound out letters is also very important, but it's not the only skill involved in reading. Encoding, to be able to take, 
take words and sounds uh, in our mind and, and put them into print is also really important. And, and so are obviously sight words. We as skilled readers seem to recognize words by sight. Right? And I think what's often misinterpreted is people look at that and they say, well, we're adults. We seem to read by sight. We'll just have children memorize words. Um, so I think that the real take-home message from, from scientific study of reading is that those skills all, all that you mentioned are all integrated, right? That we learn phonological awareness, and that helps us develop decoding, and the decoding helps us develop encoding or spelling, uh, and that helps us develop the sight words. So it's not that we learn some words by memorizing them and some words by sounding them out, but really we, we learn how to read words by integrating all these different skills. Uh, and we actually make the point in the book that that sight words, even that term, uh, we just use that term to refer to any word that you can recognize really quickly when you read. And really, shouldn't all words be sight words, right? But that doesn't mean we sit down with flashcards and memorize them. We still have to link the phonological awareness, the decoding, and the encoding, and we get all that together. That's how you develop sight words. So it's not, should we teach some words as sight words, some words as de decodable words? It's that we follow the same progression, and eventually all those words become sight words if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And I, I like the way that you broke that down. Describe how the reading brain works and what key aspects of this process, namely the dual root model, mm -hmm. should teachers understand in order to have a backdrop for developing brain-based representations for reading instruction? Wow, so I, the, the most amazing thing about the reading brain is that it involves all four lobes of the human brain. Right? So we have the frontal lobe at the very front of our brain, we have the occipital lobe that processes visual information at the back of our brain, and we have uh, temporal and parietal lobes kind of in the middle that have to do with auditory and sensory um, input. And reading involves all four of those, and it integrates all four of those lobes together. So it's a highly integrated uh, neurological process. So when we look at, at learning how to read, it encompasses skills in the frontal lobe of sounding speech sounds and speech production, the temporal and parietal lobes of where, where sound representations are stored. So it's really hearing based, but of course it's visual, right? We see print, right? So we have, we have to bring in um, the more posterior parts of the brain. Uh, and the really amazing thing with, with brain study is the neuroscientists have identified a special area called the word form area towards the back of the brain. And it's not there when we first learn how to read. It's the actual process of learning the alphabet and developing phonological awareness skills um, and basic decoding skills that makes that visual word form area become specialized for reading. And that's where those, those representations are, are stored. So when we learn a, a word that we so-called sight word that we recognize immediately and are able to spell, um, that representation gets stored in this part of the brain. But that part of the brain isn't there when we first are learning how to read. So by having instruction and phonological awareness and, set and, alph and alphabet knowledge, uh, decoding and early spelling, that's what lays those pathways for us to be able to store these brain-based representations. So contrary to what some people believe, reading is not a natural process or an instinctively acquired skill? No, I mean, that's sort of one of the the original um, arguments behind whole language many, many years ago was that written language is language, like oral language. And so we learn oral language naturally through immersion. Then that's how we would learn written language. Um, and we know that's not true. Uh, it might be true for precocious readers. Um, some people think maybe a quarter, maybe even a third of readers can, can learn, basically teach themselves how to read through immersion. Um, but most children need explicit instruction. Which leads us to the next question. Why do some current teaching philosophies and practices fall short when it comes to developing readers? 
Oh, I, I think there's many reasons. I, I think the debates in, in reading instruction have gone on for so long that the people seem to be emotionally attached to, to certain approaches. And the, the whole premise of the scientific study of reading is it's based on the scientific method, which is based on objectivity. It's also self-correcting. You know, the theories change as, as evidence is collected. Um, but yet people become very rooted in their core beliefs of how to teach reading. Right? And so I think some people be, may become defensive if they're hearing suggestions that go against what, what they've previously been told. Um, and teachers are constantly being told to do things differently. Right? One program comes in and then I don't know about here in Hawaii, but right. I, I can tell you in Canada, it's the government regulates the curriculum, and every time the government changes, the curriculum changes. Um, and so the proverbial pendulum yeah. swinging back and, and so forth. And so I think right. there's some cynicism that, that's in the system. Um, uh, and and what, what happens is people develop, I think, reading programs that are based really on narrow views. Uh, and, and really the key to the reading brain is that it, it integrates all the different skills that are involved in reading. Right? So people argue about decoding versus sight words. Well, the reading brain, those are connected. They're essentially the same thing. Right? We start decoding and that word with decoding practice becomes a sight word. And even a highly irregular word, if we partially decode it, it helps us link the letters to the sounds and that becomes a sight word. Whether or not we should be teaching you know, just the decoding or just the sight word approach, uh, it's, it's a combination and one stems from the other. So I think the current approaches seem to fall short, I think partly because of this emotional investment that, that people seem to have. Um, and I also think programs tend to be really narrowly defined because they want to associate with one camp or the other uh, instead of recognizing that we need to, the key is we need to integrate all the sub-skills together. Hmm, that makes sense. What does brain research tell us about whole language and phonics first movements? I mean, that's where the controversy comes. I mean, that's where people are so ingrained in, in, in their and, and they're thinking that it becomes an impediment to, to progressing and looking at science, right? So, I mean, the first thing that science tells us is that the whole debate really should be obsolete, right? We have plenty of evidence. We know that some of the early arguments that children learn written language through just exposure, um, it, it's, it's not true for most children. We know that some of the tenets of whole language, like having children guess uh, words rather than paying attention to the print. That's not supported in theory and it's not supported in research. But we know other aspects of whole language, uh, reading contextual, meaningful texts, having child uh, developmentally appropriate level texts, um, having a literacy rich environment. I mean, those are all great things, right? So there's certainly aspects of whole language which we can take out of that program that, that are science supported, but there's certainly aspects that aren't. But then people look at phonics first. Um, there's a great deal of research that we need phonics teaching and we need explicit teaching, but phonics isn't a panacea, right? It shouldn't be, it's often misinterpreted that it's, you know, bums and seats, busy worksheet type of work, and it doesn't have to be that. And so the, the language becomes so decontextualized that if we're only looking at, you know, three letter words with, with pictures, uh, it does lose some meaning. So we certainly know there's aspects of phonics first that are supported by science, but the, the manifestations of those in, in programs generally don't tend to be diverse enough. Uh, they don't integrate the different sub-skills of reading enough. It can be a very narrow slice. So science tells us that, yes, phonics is supported, but some of the programs just aren't doing a great job of, of integrating the areas of reading. Um, it tells us that there's aspects of the whole language movement that are not supported, but there's areas that are. Right, so it's, it's a matter of finding the right combination. What are some of those areas 
in whole language that research shows that are work right I, I think it's more just the the really literacy rich environments the level text approach of having uh, contextual stories or, or connected text that are at a child's proper developmental level um, having connection some of the early whole language uh, work which had invented spelling allowing children to explore print through invented spelling um, is certainly something that, that we're big supporters of and I mean, we kind of take it a little bit further and, and make it more of a direct teaching approach but having children explore print doing some hypothesis testing some analytical thinking on their own those are all great things but it also needs to be combined with that explicit teaching piece which is often missing and yeah, that makes sense your book, Brain Words, goes into spelling quite a bit. How does spelling re and reading share the same brain processes? And spelling, that spelling-reading connection is really what, what brought Richard Gentry and I together, is we both had this interest, and Richard for, for much longer period of time than, than I have, about the connections between spelling and reading. Most uh, cognitive and linguistic uh, models of, of language in the brain posit that, that spelling and reading are using the same representations. Right? So it's often been said, you might be able to read a word, but you might not be able to spell it. But if you can spell a word, you can read it. You're not going to have a word you can spell and then see it and not be able to read it. So it's the idea that if you can spell it, you have a stronger representation. And those representations are going to be available to you as, as a reader and writer for your lifetime. And that's what you call the spell-to-read approach. Right, exactly. So we often look at a lot of, especially go back to the idea of sight words, a lot of times... Um, children are given a list of words and those are their sight words so they're supposed to just memorize them right so they have a visual and they're supposed to memorize what that word looks like right but when you spell if you think about it you don't have the visual you start with the auditory you think about what the sound uh, what the word sorry sounds like and you try to put that into print so you create the visual but through a, a real problem-solving process we call the book brain words because that, that develops what we call the brain word a really strong representation of what the word sounds like um, ideally what it what it means but also what it looks like in terms of its spelling I like that you said it's a problem-solving process so how does this approach the spell to read approach differ from the commonly known approach that has been used known as invented spelling right uh, it, it's based very much on invented spelling I think the, the notion of invented spelling most people see as just letting children invent their own spellings, right? And, and that scares people because they think, oh, we're going we're to create a generation of children who don't know conventional spellings. So what we do is we look at invented spelling, which, which is a, a phenomenal predictor. The ability to invent spellings in kindergarten very much predicts how well they learn how to read in grade two and grade three. Um, so what we do is we look at invented spelling as a starting point. So we'll, we'll take that very child... Um, directed process where a child has a thought or a word and puts it into print and then we take what they produce and with feedback and guidance guide them to the correct spelling so we don't accept that as the correct spelling we recognize that as a you know an excellent attempt at representing what they have in mind into print but then we show them the proper way so we start with what they produce uh, and then um, use that as the teaching tools to bring them to the correct spelling and if you want to take it to a more formal approach, uh, then we would actually provide the words, right? So you say, okay, if we want to do, you know, say at families in a phonics lesson, like cat, hat, mat, um, rather than give them children worksheets with, with those words or flashcards or something, we would have them, you know, how do you think you spell the word cat? Just try your best. You know, I always say it's not a test. It's just see what each student does. And then based upon what they put on paper, you can go and, and, and show them the correct spelling. Um, and then we have a discussion. You know, we say it's a, it's a metalinguistic process, which means we, we draw their conscious awareness to the print. 
So we can say, okay, you, you hear a k, you know, maybe a child puts a k. You say, well, that's right, it could be a k, but this particular word has a, a, a c. And then we learn at. Well, that's actually two letters, a and t together will make that at. You can see if some children put a whole bunch of extra vowels or if they put, you know, too many consonants or some children just put a bunch of X's. You know where they're at develop developmentally and then you can shape that okay. into the correct spelling. And then once they have the ability to spell it, they can read it. So it sounds like there's quite a bit of guided instruction mm -hmm. and explicit instruction yeah, involved. Yeah, absolutely. I like to say it's a conversation about print. When we present this to teachers and, and we've done, both Richard and I have done professional development with teachers about this approach, we always say it's not a step-by-step, -step, you know, something you have to look into a, a manual to figure out. It's you, you look at what the child produces and you talk about it. I and like we'll that. go, what's the beginning of the word? What do you hear? What did you put? What's in the middle of the word? What's at the end? And then if it's a word that is so-called a regular word or a word that might deviate from a, a typical spelling pattern, then that's a good time to talk about it. Right? You think, oh, you know, so is S-O, and it makes this O sound, but do is D-O, but it has a different sound, even though it's the, still the letter O. And then you can have a conversation. You know, English is a wacky language. You know, this one we just have to remember sounds like this. You know, again, rather than just giving them a list to take home to memorize. Hmm. I like that you said it's a conversation, mm -hmm. so it's not so much that it's a, so, such a strict, pedantic process, mm -hmm. but you're having that conversation with the child. And we find in, in our experience, again, both the research where we developed the, the approach and in teachers that, that that we have follow-up with who've attended some of our sessions, uh, Richard and I, we find that the feedback we get from the teachers is incredibly positive. They say that the kids love it. It's much more engaging than sitting down with a worksheet, you know, with a whole bunch of AT stems. You yeah, know, you it seems like that, how you letter. described it. It yeah. seems like a very involved and engaging process. And you can do it individually, you can do it in small groups, but you can also do it with the whole class and, ha and have like a class, a class conversation about it. Great. Well, does the spelling to read or brain word approach go against the grain or does it align with the National Reading Panel's five big ideas of beginning reading? Alphabetic principle, phonemic awareness, accuracy and fluency with the text, vocabulary and comprehension. All those things are encompassed in spelling. It, it's not so much that we go against the grain, but we really think they missed something, right? And, and, and Richard likes to call it the missing piece. Um, the, the idea that, that there's a missing piece in there, and that's spelling. Because spelling integrates all these skills together. I'm glad you mentioned that because in your book, you talked about how the founding father of American education knew about brain words. And uh, it says that more than 200 years before neuroscientists would show that spelling was at the core of re the reading brain, Noel Webster's reading program started out with a spelling book, 1789, and most of his syllable patterns are still taught today. And it's estimated that 60 million American children learned to read in the 1800s with Webster's blue-backed speller. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's fascinating eh? that, that, that the original, I mean, obviously different times, and there was much more just, you know, sort of the bums and seat, seat work that was done. Uh, but the reading was taught uh, way back then through spelling, that the, each child would have their own spelling, what we might think of as a spelling workbook today, that was carefully organized by syllable pattern some of the, the major syllable patterns that, that most phonics programs are based on um, were taught through spelling. And it was kind of more, a little more drilled approach where children would write the spellings over and over again. You know, we don't necessarily do that anymore or advocate that. Uh, but it's the idea of really carefully chosen words, right? Um, word frequency is really important, but it's not the only variable that, that should determine what words 
students are taught to read, right? And in mo a lot of reading programs just look at word frequency. Um, again, in, in where I'm from in the East Coast of Canada, one of the kindergarten words is play, just based on word frequency. But P-L-A-Y, that's a pretty tough word for kindergarten. Probably not the right syllable pattern to introduce that early. So it's this idea of really carefully choosing the spelling and sound sequences and having the children practice through spelling. I mean, it was done you know, way back in the old days. That's fascinating. <laughs> Your book also addresses how some teachers misrepresent integrated word study. Yeah, that's a, that's a kind of a tough one because we found in writing the book, the phrase that kept coming back to us was this is a, a type of word study. And then when we looked at what the commercial programs are for word study, um, we didn't really, wouldn't classify them as a comprehensive or integrated word study program. That they, again, were very narrow. Uh, probably the, the biggest selling word study programs involves children sorting cards by spelling pattern. So you put all the AT words together, all the IT words together, um, which is a great activity, word sorting, but it's only one activity and it's, it's one you know, very narrow skill of, of, of seeing if children can deduce which patterns go together. Um, and we found that's the case in, in, in most so-called word study programs is they were just doing one activity um, or in teaching one very basic uh, skill or one very basic approach. Uh, and then a lot of schools uh, that we visited didn't have a word study program. So again, it's, it's the idea of contextual, meaningful text, uh, more in, in whole language or balanced literacy, uh, which is great but you also need to pay attention to the individual words. So we found that just studying words were, were either absent from what was being done in, in schools, or if it was being done, it was being done in a very narrow way. And, and the whole aspect of brain words is that, again, we want to take spelling, uh, we want to take phonological awareness, we want to take decoding, we want to take sight words, and all that becomes integrated. And all those subskills have to be targeted. And it makes sense to use the same word. So if you're going to teach a, a child how to read, you know, AT words like cat and bat and fat and hat, um, why not use those same words in phonological awareness activities, use those same words in spelling activities, use those same words in decoding activities, then those words become sight words, then those words go into sentences and contextual reading materials. So it's the idea of, of taking all the subskills and integrating them to make a really what would be a word study program. Well, it sounds like a real comprehensive approach. At what grade level should teachers begin using the spell-to-read approach? The great thing, because it's based upon this idea of invented spelling, um, it, it can be done, you know, preschool, really. One of the most important early skills, of course, is learning the alphabet. And if you don't know the alphabet, it's pretty hard to start with spelling. But you can actually learn the alphabet through spelling. So uh, we certainly advocate uh, kindergarten. Because it's not a worksheet-based approach, because it's interactive, it's child-directed, involves a lot of dialogue about language, um, there's absolutely no reason why kindergarten children can't be and shouldn't be writing these, you know, trying to write words, and then what they produce is the starting point for teaching. So, I mean, it's a long-winded way to say I think it's applicable across all ages. I think it's most readily uh, and most powerful uh, for that kindergarten to grade three and really establishing the, those representations for literacy. Yeah, that sounds like a real critical age. Yeah, but I think it's something that can be applied across the whole, uh, you know, wide, the whole educational yeah. system for different purposes. Right. And what about in terms of understanding a word within the context of language? Mm -hmm. How do you address that? Yeah, and so because, uh, again, we certainly are, are not saying, you know, you should do this and nothing else. Right. Well, we're, again, we go back to this idea of, of the missing piece. Um, we think contextual, uh, you know, literacy-rich 
type of activities are really important. It's really important to read meaningful text. Um, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't also be studying individual words. In the same way we're saying we can study individual words doesn't mean you shouldn't be reading meaningful text. So this is not a replacement for that. It's something that would be added on. Um, and every word that we introduce in, in a spell to read approach, the first um, activity is a discussion of the word. What does it mean? Can you put it in a sentence? So it's oral language based. Because if you already have the meaning in your brain, um, that means you know what the word means and you already know how it sounds. All you're adding are the letters, right? As opposed to learning a whole new word, then you have to store the, the meaning. Um, you have to store you know, how to pronounce the word. So you're storing more information. So if you can establish the meaning and the pronunciation first, then all you have to do is tag out the spelling onto that. So our first step is always a, a, a discussion about vocabulary. Um, having the, the students create sentences just orally. You know, can you say this word in a sentence? Um, what do you think it means? Having discussion about meaning. And then we take it to, to the spelling and reading part. So even though it's, it's isolated words, not in sentences to begin with, um, there's a connection to meaning. You always need meaning. Yeah, okay. In a nutshell, please unpack for us how building brain words might look like in a kindergarten classroom or in a first grade classroom. Sure. So, so we, we often talk, uh, and, and we mentioned in the book, a five-step approach. And the, the first step of that is to, he to hear the word. So it's just auditory stimulation. Uh, phonological awareness, of course, is an auditory skill where, where we just pay attention to how words sound. And the second step would be to say the word. So we want to bring in speech production. Um, and But we also want to link to meaning. Um, so what we would do in the kindergarten or grade one classroom is, is introduce some words. Uh, we talk about the words. And there's no print. Right? And, and so it's not looking at print and memorizing. It's listening to words and, and thinking about what they might look like in print. So we start just auditory. We might do some rhyming activities, some phonological awareness activities, talking about words that start with the same sound or, or counting uh, the different sounds on our fingers. Um, so all auditory skills, we talk about what the words mean. We'd have the students say the words. So it's hear it, say it before any print is introduced. So it's just an oral language introduction. Um, and then we talk about step three is to spell it. So again, they haven't seen the word yet. So it's not a memorization, it's not a visual memorization. We say, okay, how do you think this word is spelled? Just do your best. And we see what the students come up with. Um, and then we correct that spelling and have them recopy it. And then we have them read it. So step four is to read it, right? So we've gone from hear it, say it, spell it, read it. And then the final step we say is use it. So now we bring in some sentences. Now we might have some leveled texts that have those words in it. Um, or we give target sentences for the children to, to write and read back themselves. Um, so we start with listening. We bring in speech production. Um, we use spelling to really uh, help the child connect the, what they hear to what the word's going to look like. And then they read that spelling, the corrected version of it, um, and then use that word in connected meaningful text. Oh, that's great. And this is something that even parents can work yeah, on. Yeah, absolutely. Hear it, say it, spell it, read it. And use it. And use it. Yeah. Great. In your book, you talk about the developmental phases and best practices for teaching, reading, and spelling. Can mm. you just kind of touch upon that? Developmental phases refer to a description of how children acquire literacy. And so Linnea Airy was a forerunner in that area. And Richard Gentry, uh, at the same time, was writing about how children acquire spelling skills. And it turns out when you look at what Airy and Gentry were writing, you put them side by side, it's, they're almost identical. And that children progress in their ability to, to put words into print and uh, the ability to read words. And they may start only by paying attention to the beginning of the word. Um, and then they learn more about the middle of the word until they get a complete representation. 
right? So a, ch a child in kindergarten might see the word butterfly and somebody might tell them that says butterfly. So when they see that word, they say butterfly, right? But then if they see the word beautiful, they'll probably say butterfly, right? So they're really only processing that first letter. And it's with, with experience with print and thinking about these units smaller than a word, and then that's really important. We're not memorizing words, we're breaking it down into to the, the components. Then children progress across those phases of processing just part of the word to processing the whole word. And so when we look at teaching, it's the same idea. Phonological awareness helps children break a word down into smaller parts. Teaching the alphabet and decoding helps children learn how to blend these sounds together to make words. And spelling, we, we are learning how to take these sounds that we hear in our mind and put them onto paper. Um, and then with practice through decoding, these words become sight words. Right, so if we look at developmental phases, we say that we shouldn't actually have sight words until we can decode. Right, so the whole idea of word walls are a big thing where teachers plaster words all over the walls and, ch and children um, more or less have visual exposure. But we often say don't put those words up there until you try to have them spell them. Have them decode them. Have them think about the subcomponents of the word um, because developmentally that comes first. Right? Phonological awareness, alphabet knowledge, decoding and spelling and then come the sight words, right? And then the words go on the wall and then they not only know what the words look like, but they know what those individual letters do in that word. Where I come from, our kindergarten program in, in, in New Brunswick in Canada has 13 sight words. That's part of the curriculum. Kin kids in kindergarten must know these 13 yeah. words. And so the teachers just send the, uh, often send the list home and the kids are supposed to memorize them with their parents. Right? Ah. But the, they don't talk about what letters are in those words. They might not even know the alphabet yet. Yeah. Right? So they've skipped all the developmental steps right, and going right. right to the sight words. Oh, I, see. Right? I see. And sight words will come if you know phonological awareness, the alphabet, and the ability to decode. That leads you to sight words. We say in the book, our goal is to make all words sight words. I see. But you get there by being able to process the, the units smaller than the words, individual letters, the chunks. Um, and, and, and that's based upon phonological awareness and decoding skills, which are really developed through spelling. How would you respond to a parent or a teacher who says, well, this is not going to work for my dyslexic readers, mm -hmm. and dyslexic learners? Yeah, I mean, dyslexia, uh, it's kind of the, the final chapter uh, of the book. Uh, we, we discuss dyslexia. It, it, it's such a complicated condition, right? And the real issue with dyslexia is that with our advancements of neuroscience um, and, and understanding the reading brain, we still don't know 100% what's happening in dyslexia. What it appears is that the, the reading brain is fundamentally wired differently. And so we can look at, well, if the, the wiring is different, uh, and it seems to be more in the interconnections between those areas of the brain. So the visual word form area, this area that develops in the back of the brain, um, doesn't seem to be as connected to the parts of the brain involved in decoding and speech production as in typical readers. So we can say, well, how can we help connect those areas of the brain? Um, this idea of child-directed spelling integrates, I mean, that's the whole premise of, of the approach, is it, it, it's meant to integrate those parts of the brain. Um, so we believe that, that this would be an excellent approach to try. There's never any guarantees with, with a condition like dyslexia. Um, some approaches work um, for some children and not for others. Uh, the, the research on dyslexia suggests that intensive phonics is the most effective approach, but it's not 100% effective. And actually, there's some studies showing that, that it, it, it's the, the effectiveness is, is actually quite low. It's better than anything else, but it, it's far from you know, necessarily the answer for all children. So we think this spell-to-read approach is actually a little more child-directed. It's more developmentally sensitive. Uh, it's more geared towards integrating the different brain regions. Um, so we think it would be an ideal candidate for work with, with dyslexia. 
the research on, you know, in, in terms of its direct efficacy has, has yet to be completed, right? So now we're looking from a theoretical perspective, this would seem to be an ideal approach, right? So now we need to do the actual studies that which would test out that hypothesis. But for somebody looking for an approach to use with dyslexia, we, we think this is ideally tailored to, to that population. That's terrific. Uh, for those listening, those interested in following your work, mm-hmm. like me, how can they go about doing that? I think the book is a really good introduction. Most of, of the research that's cited in there uh, has either come from work associated with my lab or for, for colleagues that, that I've um, worked with um, uh, in the past. Richard Gentry ha- has his own website. He also writes for Psychology Today. And my my own research is linked through the, our university webpage. So again, if, if somebody were to, to Google uh, Wallette, uh, O-U-E-L-L-E-T-T-E at Mount Allison, uh, you would stumble across the psychology webpage, which would have a link to, to my personal lab uh, page, which, which would have a link to a lot of the research papers. Great. Thanks for sharing that information. Sure. In addition to your book, Brain Words, can you recommend any other readings or books to our listeners? You know, one of the better ones out there is by David Kilpatrick. That's uh, Essentials of Assessment, Preventing and Overcoming Reading Difficulties is the name of the book, I believe, which is quite, um, uh, it goes in more in-depth into the actual research than we do. Uh, in terms of details of some of the studies. And it's a, it's a much broader book, uh, but it's also very readable. Um, Mark Seidenberg last year put out a book called Language at the Speed of Light, which is a much heavier read, much more theoretical bent. But he's a, a huge advocate of taking the science of reading and putting it into the, the classroom. Oh, great. Thank you for those recommendations. And uh, last question, do you have a favorite quote that drives you and keeps you passionately engaged in the important work that you do? You know, not really. Uh, I'm, I'm not a big quote guy. But no, for me, it's more, you know, my past, my, my experience of, of working in the school system and then just developing this, this interest in the research side and, and seeing the separation of the, like I say, the, the research and the teaching world. Um, for me, it's just really, you know, my goal is to try to, to bring those, those two worlds together. Well, that's great. That in and of itself is inspiring. Well, Gene, Dr. Willett, thank you for being a guest on the Pacific Education Pulse podcast. Our listeners and I appreciate your sharing your time, personal experiences, and expertise, all for the purpose of improving teaching and learning. Once again, the title of Dr. Gentry and Willett's book is Brain Words, How the Science of Reading Informs Teaching. To our listeners out there, thank you for joining us. Remember to keep your pulse on the finger of education by subscribing to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. You can also find this episode and other pep talk episodes on our website, pacificeducationpulse.com. Until next time, aloha. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. To learn more, hear other episodes, or subscribe to the Pacific Education Pulse podcast series, visit pacificeducationpulse.com. Until next time, aloha. Aloha.